So I think this has been a very uh, successful day for practice because we've reached nearly the end of the first full day and everybody's still here. So congratulations and well done. We're happy to see if that's true. But the first days often are difficult. So as you know from earlier retreats, it can take a while to settle in. So uh, please don't get discouraged until about the third or fourth day. <laughs> then it's okay. The subject of the talk tonight is mindfulness of breathing. I wanted to talk about this because these are the instructions that we've been working with uh, for the first couple of days. And when I thought about talking about mindfulness of breathing, I realized that I, I needed to put it in the context of uh, the Buddha's whole teachings. And when I looked at doing that, it became like one of those Russian dolls, you know, where you take off the head and there's a smaller one underneath, and then you take off that head and there's a smaller one. So I want to unpack the Russian dolls that hold mindfulness of breathing. So the first is in the Buddha's first discourse, he talked about the Four Noble Truths. As you all probably know, the truth of suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering and the way to the end of suffering. And it's said that the whole rest of his teaching career, 45 years, was just footnotes to those four teachings. So this is the biggest container that, that we'll talk about. The Buddha's Four Noble Truths are in a way a summary. Within the Four Noble Truths, so that's the outer doll, and then you go one in, within the Four Noble Truths is the Eightfold Path. The way to the end of suffering is the Eightfold Noble Path. And within the Eightfold Noble Path, in the meditation section, as you probably remember, it's right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So now we're in the territory of mindfulness. So within the territory of mindfulness, the way right mindfulness is described, we unpack another doll, is in terms of the four foundations of mindfulness. And within, unpack one more doll, within the four foundations of mindfulness, the first foundation is mindfulness of the body. And within that doll, the mindfulness of the body, the first thing mentioned is mindfulness of breathing. So these are the containers. Four Noble Truths reveals the Eightfold Path, reveals mindfulness, reveals mindfulness, reveals the Four Foundations, reveals mindfulness of the body, reveals mindfulness of breathing. So this is the little bit of the teachings that I want to talk about tonight, but I want to also bring in a discussion of what mindfulness is and why mindfulness of the body is important and then the role of mindfulness of breathing. So really I wanna hit those last three dolls as we get to mindfulness of breathing. So what is mindfulness? You know, I find this a really interesting question because I've asked a lot of people and as many people as I've asked, I've come up with that many definitions. And then you can go on the web and you can find tons of definitions also. 
especially because mindfulness has come into the mainstream and scientists are getting interested in it, they want to get really precise. Now, the Buddha never defined mindfulness. I think this is really interesting. He never said mindfulness is A, B, and C. You have to get the flavor of it from reading all the different things he said about it. But of course, if you go on the web and you listen to the, you know, the recent Western understandings of mindfulness, you can get a lot of different definitions. And I'm always kind of amused when I go on the web and I read that someone is the foremost authority on mindfulness because they have a PhD and they've been studying it academically. Never mentioning that the whole concept came from the Buddha 2,500 years ago. So I personally consider the Buddha the foremost authority on mindfulness. And so in wanting to understand uh, what mindfulness is, I think it's interesting to look at one of his discourses. The Satipatthana Sutta is the primary teaching that he gave on the general development of mindfulness. And to unpack that term, sati means mindfulness, patana means establishing, and sutta means, it literally means thread, but in the context of the teachings, it means discourse. So this is a discourse on the ways of establishing mindfulness. That's what it's all about. Sometimes called the foundations of mindfulness, but it's how we establish mindfulness. So I want to read you some excerpts from that discourse in the operational way that mindfulness is developed and ask you what's important. So I'll just read some excerpts. You don't need to understand the whole thing, but just these little excerpts. In the first foundation, there's this phrase, breathing in long, one understands I breathe in long. Or breathing in short, one understands I breathe in short. Or in the second foundation, feeling a pleasant feeling, one understands I feel a pleasant feeling. Or feeling an unpleasant feeling, one understands I feel an unpleasant feeling. In the third foundation, when the mind is affected by hate, one understands the mind is affected by hate. When the mind is not affected by hate, one understands the mind is not affected by hate. In the fourth foundation, when the enlightenment factor of energy is present, one understands the enlightenment factor of energy is present. When the enlightenment factor of energy is not present, one understands the enlightenment factor of energy is not present. What do you take as the key word running through all of these? Is it pretty clear? What word repeats? Breathing in long, one understands, I breathe in long. It's this word understands, isn't it? It occurs in every one of the explanations of how to develop mindfulness. So I take this word understands as pointing us experientially to what mindfulness is. So it's very interesting, this word understands is Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation of the Pali word pajanati. Pajanati. And it is very closely related to the term sampajanya, which is usually translated clear comprehension. <coughs> 
So Bhikkhu Bodhi translates it as understands. The Venerable Analyo in his book on the Satipatthana Sutta translates it as knows. So this is interesting. One person says knows, the other says understands. So you get the sense this word is somewhere in between understanding and knowing. So I want to suggest this is Guy Armstrong's definition, modern Western interpreter of the Buddha's teachings, that for us as practitioners, the working definition of mindfulness can be understanding what your experience is in the present moment. This is a lot less complicated than a lot of the definitions you'll read on the web. You can read some very long descriptions with a lot of added stuff. But I think for our purposes, based on the Satipatthana Sutta, this is a good way for us to think of it. I like this definition because it's really simple. And it's directive. So, suppose you get in a situation where you become confused or a little lost or you're not sure how to practice in the next moment. What this definition says is take a look what's happening in your present moment experience. And if you can do that and notice what it is, you've reactivated mindfulness. And that means you're back on track and that means the path is engaged again. You've engaged the path to awakening. So this is really easy. No matter what's going on, you just say, basically is another way to ask it, what's happening now? And when you know the answer to that, when you understand, oh, this is what's happening now, mindfulness has been reactivated. So I want to put this out really as a practice instruction. It's my interpretation. Other teachers may frame it a little differently. But I found that this really works. It's really simple and it's really helpful for me to remember in any moment. This is how we turn mindfulness back on. We ask what's happening now and we look and we see. And as Annie said this morning, it can be in any of the six senses. It could be sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thoughts, emotions, mind objects. So just take a look. One of those will, will stand out when you look. So the next kind of question is, is mindfulness automatic? Is it always happening for you? Did it happen every moment today? No, not likely. If it did, please come sit up here and you can <laughs> give us teachings. We have to make a little bit of effort to be mindful. But that effort doesn't need to be very hard. For instance, if you put your fingertips together right now, can you be mindful of that experience of the fingers touching? Is that difficult? No. Mindfulness can be just that light and just that easy. It requires a little bit of attention to know it, but not much work. The difficult thing with mindfulness is remembering to do it in every new moment because we get distracted. 
we go in other directions. So it's not hard to be mindful, but the intention has to be renewed frequently because it's not automatic. You can't just say at the start of a sit, I'm going to be mindful this whole sitting and that's going to happen. So during the sitting, you need to keep renewing that intention to answer the question, what's happening now? It's the renewing of that intention that makes mindfulness come into more and more moments of your day, more and more moments of your sitting, your walking, your working, your meals, your showers, your bathroom breaks, and so on. So that little by little, the whole day gets filled in with these moments. And that's what we're pointing to when we talk about the continuity of mindfulness. It's not that we expect mindfulness really to be continuous, but the aim is to make it more and more frequent. That is, fill in more and more moments of the day with this quality, simply knowing what's going on, what you're experiencing. And that's how, how it develops. So it's very simple. And when you first come into a retreat like this, it may not feel like very much. When we notice the, the contact of the fingertips, that probably didn't feel like an earth-shaking moment. But what's so interesting is that when you put one simple moment next to another, next to another, the power of the momentum of the continuity of mindfulness starts to build and it does become earth-shaking. This is a practice that can take us to the depths of our being and give us a, a fantastically new approach to life, to our inner life, to outer life, to other people. So it's so interesting to me that such a simple kind of knowing, just knowing what you're experiencing, can lead to such powerful results. I'd like to read this from the Buddha. This is toward the end of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Discourse on Mindfulness. This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. That's a big promise. And it all starts with such a simple act of connecting, connecting to the present moment. Okay, so I think everyone admitted you weren't mindfully present in every moment of the day. So we have to look at the question of what's the alternative? When we're not being mindful, what's happening? So I like this cartoon in the New Yorker from some months ago. There was a person at work They were on their PC, so they were supposed to be working on the keyboard, but there was a thought bubble, a fantasy, an imagination, which was of them on the golf course. So daydreaming, obviously. The next panel is that person's on the golf course, and there's a thought bubble, as they're holding their club, there's a thought bubble of them making love with a partner. Another daydream. In the third panel, maybe you can guess, they're in bed making love with their partner and there's a thought bubble 
of them being at work on the PC. So this is kind of the alternative when we're not mindful. We get taken over and carried away into these imaginings and into these thought streams. So where do they take us? When we're not mindful, where does the attention go? It goes a lot into past, it goes a lot into future. So remembering, and anticipating. It goes into planning, goes into judging, goes into comparing, goes into views and opinions, and it goes into fantasy, some pleasant, some unpleasant. We can talk about these as distractions, and to me that sounds kind of neutral. You know, I got distracted for a second, but now I'm back. But if you look closely at where the thoughts lead, emotionally, is it always that neutral? Or when you go into the past, do you sometimes go into regret, sadness, anger, conflict, judgments of yourself or others? When you go into the future, is it just kind of a a clinical investigation? Or do you go into wanting or longing or anxiety or worry or fear about the future? So start to investigate what is happening when you're not being mindful. Is it just a neutral experience, like sort of imagining what's for lunch? Or do some of these thoughts, memories, plans, future, take you into areas that are actually pretty emotionally charged? In my observation, this happens a lot. When our minds wander, they tend to wander into areas that have charge for us. So it's hard to be mindful in the middle of a thought stream. But when you return to the present moment, which you will, check and see where the attention has been. And check and see, when you come back, do you feel more peaceful, more settled, more contented, more calm, more happy? Or how often do you feel more agitated? more stirred up, more discontented, more upset. This is not to be judgmental because all of our minds wander in these directions. We're not wanting to judge this activity, but we do want to learn from it. We want to learn what's going on in our minds. And specifically, we want to learn what are our actions of, of mind, of speech, and of body that lead us into more unhappiness? And what are the actions that lead us into more happiness? One of the key questions you can investigate with this is where is the attention dwelling? And when the attention dwells in the present moment, how does that feel? 
Well, the present moment isn't always pleasant. An emotion, difficult emotion may be present. The body may not be so comfortable. So coming into the present is not always a great experience. But because of mindful, our development of mindfulness, it holds this transformative potential. So it's where we want to place our bets, really, as meditators. It's what we want to trust in. But when we wander away in extended thoughts, again, check it out, do they lead to greater calm, contentment, happiness, and settledness? Or do those thought streams end up making us more agitated and dissatisfied? Do they tend to lead more to suffering? And where are we dwelling? Are we dwelling in the present, which has the potential to be transformative? Are we dwelling in past and future views and opinions, regrets and anticipation? This is a really key distinction that the Buddha drew between what he called wise attention and unwise attention. We're always placing our attention somewhere. This is an interesting thing to see when you start to meditate and observe the mind. The attention is always landing somewhere. In Abhidhamma terms, the attention is what's called a universal factor. It's present in every waking moment. Where is the attention landing and where is it dwelling? We can examine this. We can start to observe the mind. One of the great things uh, Joseph's first teacher, Manindraji, said, if you want to understand the mind, sit down and observe it. And that's really what we're doing here. It's really simple. We sit down and we see what it does. So one of the things it does, it moves attention from one object to another throughout the course of a sitting, a walking, a meal, moving about your room and so forth. Where is the attention landing and how long is it dwelling there? Is it dwelling in places that lead to greater calm, settledness, peace, and happiness? Or is it dwelling in places that leave us more agitated and stirred up? It's not that we can automatically control by will where the attention goes and for how long, but this is the interesting thing about the wisdom aspect of mindfulness. Remember I said that pajanati, related to clear comprehension, has a wisdom component. So mindfulness has an intelligent property built in. It understands, it knows. And that intelligence, when it wakes up, can look at attention, where it's dwelling that leads to happiness, where it's dwelling that leads to suffering, and learn from that. You don't have to force it by will. But if you turn your mindful attention to that question, Mindfulness will show you the answer. And more and more, just by wisdom, we learn, I don't really want to hang out where I'm increasing my own suffering. I want to hang out with attention that's leading to greater happiness. So trust in this aspect of mindfulness. Trust that it will learn as you observe and show you the way. 
You don't have to figure it all out ahead of time. Watch what happens, what leads to happiness, what doesn't. So, of course, wise attention to the present moment is one of the best ways to dwell. As the Dalai Lama said, you could say this about a lot of things, the present moment is the only place we can feel love or compassion or insight. All these beautiful qualities come about when we can connect to the present moment. So, this first benefit of mindfulness is that we spend more time connecting in the present, less time in the agitated uh, thoughts of past and future. That leads to more settledness and we start to learn how the mind operates, what leads to suffering and what leads to happiness. But I think you all know, it's not that thoughts are the problem or that thoughts are the enemy or that we shouldn't be thinking. We're not meditating to stop thinking. We're meditating to become aware of thinking when it happens. So we'll unfold the instructions in a few more days so that we can be as mindful of a thought as we are of any other present moment experience. But it takes a little stability to do that well, so we'll wait a few more days to do that. So just as Annie said this morning, anything that's happening can be a great ground for mindfulness, including thinking, and we'll get there. So that's just kind of a a broad view of mindfulness, the way it leads to peace, the way it leads to greater happiness, connecting to the moment. And then I want to talk a little bit about the next doll in, which is mindfulness of the body. Within the overall field of mindfulness, this is one that is really helpful and really central. Mindfulness of the body. It's in uh, so many discourses of the Buddhas. Of course, it's the first foundation of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta. Uh, there's one part in the um, numerical discourses, the Anguttara Nikaya, where there are 50 discourses in a row in praise of the benefits of mindfulness of the body. 50 discourses in a row. So that's very uh, encouraging, very inspiring. Here's one of the things that the Buddha said in one of those discourses. They do not partake of the deathless who do not partake of mindfulness of the body. They partake of the deathless who partake of mindfulness of the body. The deathless is a synonym for Nibbana. It's the term for reaching the state of unshakable peace that the Buddha discovered in his enlightenment and passed on uh, to us the teachings for. Here's another beautiful statement from uh, those numerical discourses. When one thing is developed and cultivated, the body becomes tranquil, the mind becomes tranquil, extraneous thoughts subside, and all wholesome qualities that pertain to true knowledge reach fulfillment. What is that one thing? Mindfulness directed to the body. So the Buddha encourages us again and again to be really in touch with 
What's our direct experience in the body? As he said, to feel these experiences in the body, not as thoughts, but what's actually happening in the body. I find this really interesting because ultimately meditation is about the mind. If we want to understand the mind, we sit down and observe it. We want to understand what mental actions lead to happiness and what lead to suffering. And if you look at some of the most kind of important lists, you'll see how mental they are. The five hindrances, the four right efforts, the seven factors of enlightenment, and the five spiritual faculties. These are all about qualities of mind and it is qualities of mind that liberate. The body can be completely free of pain. The body can be completely healthy. And yet it does not of itself have liberating potential. If it did, babies would be pretty much done. Healthy babies might be done. But it's really about wake, our challenge is to wake up the mind and its wisdom. That's really what frees. So why is the body so central, so emphasized in the Buddha's teachings? So a few reasons. First, this mindfulness is always available. We can always drop in and feel the body and know what's happening. So as a ground, it's always there for us. It's a great support in that way. If you're not sure what to pay attention to, just feel the body. The Buddha himself said that, uh, yes, the body is changing, but it's not changing as fast as the mind. So if you want someplace a little more stable to land, the body is a little more stable than the mind. So that's why it grounds our attention and you can feel that as you sit As you sit in stillness in the meditation hall, feel how the grounded calm of the body kind of talks to the mind. The mind absorbs the stillness that the body's manifesting. It's sort of beautiful. We sometimes will give the instruction to sit like a mountain. And you feel how the body can just sit through all kinds of storms. There could be mental storms, there could be bodily restlessness. And to some extent, it's one of the beautiful things I appreciate when I look out. You all are sitting still and letting it go. And the body stays there, unmoved in a way. This quality of unmovedness communicates to the mind. It's one of the reasons that sitting meditation has a certain power. Of course, we need to discover this unshakable attention in all the postures. But the sitting posture does communicate something of that unshakability. Ajahn Buddhadasa, who was one of my teachers in in Thailand uh, when I was in robes, said, don't do anything that takes you out of the body. This is an interesting practice instruction through the day. See if what it would feel like to stay in the body most of the time, to really inhabit it, as I think Annie mentioned in the walking. Can we really inhabit our body all day long? This is a very helpful practice direction. And it's in such 
sharp contrast to a lot of uh, European culture. I think about uh, James Joyce, the Irish author. One of his characters in Ulysses was a man named Mr. Duffy. And Joyce's description was, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. So, you know, when you feel into that, you get the sense of the, a little bit withdrawal from life. Uh, separation from the vital energy of the body into some kind of headspace. Too much, too much thought. Disconnected in some ways. As we stay in touch with the body, one of the great benefits is we stay in touch with our emotions. Oftentimes, it's become difficult to stay in the body because the emotions have gotten um, too uncomfortable. So particularly for people who have had trauma in life, whether that trauma is from personal incidents, uh, physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, uh, racism or homophobia, Long-standing racism and homophobia can be traumatic for people also. Then sometimes the body has become uh, full of the residue of the trauma and it's not easy to be in it. So this mindfulness of the body isn't always available, not always available for all of us. And if the contact with the bodily energy seems too overwhelming or too threatening because of that residue, then uh, mindfulness of the body may not be the preferred anchor for you. In that case, talk with your teacher and find out how best to work. It could be mindfulness of, of sound would be a helpful alternative. But if you're able to rest in the body without rest the attention in the body without too much difficulty, then it really does serve as a wonderful channel to stay in touch with emotions. If the mind is agitated, the body will likely be also. If the body feels calm, likely the mind is often going to be calm also. So it's a very good place to check in and feel what's happening. Also, if any strong emotion is up, it's going to be felt in the body. Happiness, you'll feel an uplift. Joy, a surge of energy, maybe in the chest. Fear will be felt as a strong contraction. Anger, maybe as a tensing around the neck and shoulders. So by staying in touch with the body, you'll know what's happening in the mind when these strong emotions are present. And that is a great contribution to self-knowledge to self-understanding. So, as Annie mentioned, as we bring our attention into the body, rest and inhabit the body, one of the things you'll notice is the impact of breathing. So, sitting and feeling the body, you'll start to feel what it feels like breathing in and breathing out. So now we come into the terrain of mindfulness of breathing, which is the innermost of the little dolls that I want to talk about. Really, if you look at the whole uh, modern history of Vipassana practice, I don't know if it's always been like this, but in the last 
50 or 75 years, mindfulness of breathing is the most emphasized practice in my observation, in the teachers that I've sat with, in the books that I've read, in the talks that I've listened to. Most often, the first instruction will be mindfulness of breathing. So it's come to occupy a really central role in our lineage in Vipassana, and there are, there are very good reasons for that. But as Annie also said this morning, mindfulness of breathing is not the right anchor for everyone. Just as mindfulness of body sometimes isn't so helpful, in some cases, mindfulness of breathing is not always the best place to settle. So let me talk about a few reasons why, and then I'll go into what's so helpful about it. If you have had difficulty breathing at some time in your life, maybe you had asthma as a child, maybe there was a life-threatening situation where you felt you couldn't breathe at some point, mindfulness of breathing may bring you back in touch with that and bring up the fear and anxiety that you felt in that situation. So in that case, it might not be the best primary focus, the best anchor for you. Another uh, case in which mindfulness of breathing might not be so great, if like me, you were kind of a perfectionist or a striver uh, in your life or in your early meditation. Because when I started with mindfulness of breathing, I thought, I can't miss a single breath or it's not going to work. And so I sort of just stayed really tightly on top of the breath to get, catch every single one that went by. And of course I couldn't, but trying to do that made me really tense. It wasn't until I'd done a lot of meditation with other objects that I learned to relax enough that then I could come back and be with the breath in a truly relaxed way. So see what your relationship is to the breath as you start to connect with it. If you find yourself getting really tense around it, talk with your teacher. Maybe there are ways to bring relaxation into mindfulness of breathing. Maybe a combination of breath with another focus would be most helpful for you. But talk with your teacher and see what makes sense for you. The central discourse uh, in the Buddha's teachings on this topic is a discourse called the Anapanasati Sutta, Discourse on the Mindfulness of Breathing. Uh, in the, also in the middle length sayings, the same as the Satipatthana Sutta. And there's a long section that describes all the benefits of mindfulness of breathing. And one of the interesting things to me is that at one point in his teaching career, you know, the Buddha was fully awakened before he started teaching. He's 35 years old, fully awakened, taught for 45 more years. But at one point in his teaching, he went into retreat for three months. Meaning, don't talk to me. You know, I'm not going to come out and give talks. I'm going back, staying in seclusion and doing my own practice. And when he came out, what do you think he was practicing? For three months, he was practicing mindfulness of breathing. 
So I find this really interesting that someone who's already awakened still finds it helpful to abide in the mindfulness of breathing. So if it worked for the Buddha, it's got to be good for us also. So in mindfulness of breathing, see where you feel it most clearly. It really varies from person to person. Some people may feel it most clearly at the nose. For some, it may be in the chest. For others, in the belly. Some people uh, may feel what's called whole body breathing, which I experience is settling into the torso and feeling the expansion of the rib cage and contraction, kind of like bellows. Or some people like to follow the breath as it enters the nose, goes down, expands the chest, expands the belly, and then reverses on the way out. So that was what? About half dozen different techniques for mindfulness of breathing, and there are many, many more. You know, you can add mental noting to that or not. So there are lots of ways to feel the breath. All of them are good. I'll give some more suggestions tomorrow morning in, in the instructions. But there's one particular part of mindfulness of breathing I want to talk a little bit about. It's called connecting and sustaining. These are translations of two Pali terms called vitaka and vichara. They are the first two factors that go into developing strong concentration. They are two factors that are to some extent under our control. This is the beauty of connecting and sustaining. So the idea is, let's say we take the breath as an object. When an in-breath begins, we connect our attention to it. This is the exercise in wise attention. I'm going to be mindful of the breath. So on the start of the in-breath, we make the effort to connect the attention to that experience of breathing in. That's connecting, that's vitaka. And then once we've connected, we make the effort to sustain the attention there for a bit. And this is the effort of vichara. This is the factor of vichara. So the question becomes, how long should you sustain? What if I told you that you were no good unless you could sustain the attention for 10 minutes? Would you succeed? No. So we're not going to say that. The right length of time to sustain, according to us, is one half a breath. Can you connect at the start of the in-breath and sustain the attention for the duration of the in-breath? Then can you connect at the start of the out-breath and sustain the attention for the duration of the out-breath? That's enough. Is that doable? Sometimes, right? (laughs) Sometimes you might just touch it and then off. But often you can, can't you? Sustain for half a breath. Play with these two factors. Connecting the attention at the start of an in-breath, sustaining it for the in-breath. Connecting it for the start of the out-breath and sustaining for the length of the out-breath. And see what happens in your practice. It's the continuity of mindfulness that leads to the development of samadhi. These are two factors 
that help the samadhi to grow. And they are factors to some extent within our power. Focus on developing these two qualities as you're engaging with the breath and see what happens. Of course, you'll go away. Of course, you'll be gone for a while. Of course, you'll come back. When you come back, can you land with grace? Instead of saying, oh, I messed it up again. I was away. I was away for so long. You know, here's a place you could ask, what's the right length of time to be away? What's that bar? Do you have one? No, but whatever time you were away, it was too long, right? We don't know the right length of time to be away, but whatever time it was, it was too long. So we can't control the length we were away. When you're back, you can't really control how long you're back before the attention goes away again into thought and the loss of mindfulness. That's okay. The thing is that this is the training. As we practice connecting and sustaining, we will be present more and more. We will be away in thought, lost in thought, less and less. That's the way it develops. Now, another name for this connecting and sustaining, I really like this, is aiming and rubbing. These are just different translations of the same words, vitaka and vichara. So think about it in this way. You aim your attention toward the first contact with the in-breath, and then when it lands, you rub it. Rub it with your mindful attention. And then when the in-breath is ended, you let go of that. And then when the out-breath starts, you aim again, and you rub for a bit. This to me has a lovely kind of uh, physical, almost sensual feeling of intimacy of the attention with the direct experience in the body. And if we can learn to aim and rub, we get some very nice uh, results from it. One is, of course, you're staying connected to the present moment. You're not going off into the unwise fields of attention. The second is that when you rub any experience, it could be a body sensation, it could be an in-breath, it could be an out-breath, it could be an emotion, it could be a thought, When you rub it with mindful attention, you start to know it better. You start to learn about it because the wisdom is there in the middle of the rubbing. Mindfulness is learning at the same time that you're rubbing. So what do we learn? Okay, we rub the sensation of an in-breath. Maybe it feels like um, expansion. Maybe it feels like pressure. We rub that, and one of the things we see is that any sensation within an in-breath has certain qualities. You know, expansion feels a certain way. Contraction feels a certain way. Pressure feels a certain way. These lead us into really understanding the bare physical nature of our bodies. Formally, we would talk about these in terms of the four elements by rubbing a sensation, by rubbing an in-breath, we start to get to know the body in terms of the four elements that make it up, earth, water, fire, and air. We start to see its primal nature that my air element is just like yours, 
My earth element is just like yours. My earth element is just like the rocks and the trees. We start to see that in our direct experience. So we learn the individual nature of bodily sensations, individual nature of the breath. But we also start to see its universal characteristics. We see that every sensation of expansion that arises also is of the nature to pass away. Every sensation of contraction that arises also is of the nature to pass away. Every in-breath passes away. Every out-breath passes away. We start to see this as we rub our experience with mindful attention. So we start to understand these universal characteristics of impermanence, of unreliability. Nothing stays the same connected with the breath. The unreliability, we might always like the breath to be smooth and comfortable and calm and it's not always like that. It's not always reliable. And we start to see all these things are coming and going on their own. We don't make the sensation of expansion be the way it is. We don't make the feeling of pressure be the way it is. The body is doing its own thing and to a large extent it's out of our hands. The body is living its own life. So, classically speaking, by rubbing, we start to really see the three characteristics of existence. The impermanent, unsatisfactory, and selfless nature of what makes up our experience, in this case, of the breath, or you could say, of the body. This is because mindfulness comes with built-in wisdom and the rubbing lets us get to know our experience directly. The wisdom will illuminate those truths for us. So just a couple more things to say about the breath. When the Buddha talked about mindfulness meditation, he talked about two broad effects that it has. One he called samatha, the other he called vipassana. Samatha is tranquility, vipassana is insight. It's the way we usually translate them. Meaning that as you develop mindfulness, part of what happens is you get calm, and the other part of what happens is you get wise. The samatha aspects lead to greater tranquility in body and in mind. And the insight aspects lead us to understand the way our experience is constructed. It leads us to see these three characteristics which lead us into letting go. And it's the letting go that leads us into liberation. So we really appreciate both these developments, the tranquility feels good in and of itself. Sometimes we think tranquility is primarily of the mind, but tranquility is equally of the body. When we come into meditation, often we've accumulated 20, 30, 40 years or more of life experiences that result in the body you know, having tension, having stored emotions. And when we sit, sometimes those things come through 
and the body doesn't feel so tranquil and the mind doesn't feel so tranquil. The samatha aspects of mindfulness start to allow that energy to move through and calm the whole system, calm the body and calm the mind. And then we find that we can sit comfortably with some degree of, of ease of both body and mind. This is the beauty of samatha. This samatha can be developed to great depths. And when it's developed to great depths, it strengthens, it strengthens to high degree the factor of concentration of samadhi. Having met teachers who have developed this element to a very high degree, it is very impressive. Someone like Deepama, an Indian uh, teacher who visited IMS in the, in the late 70s, an Indian woman from Calcutta, really beautiful being, radiated loving kindness. Her mind was so still and her heart was just open. In her presence, you always felt, felt loved. Ajahn Jimnian, a Thai forest master, had strong uh, unification of mind, strong samadhi from very early on as a child. Said for 25 years, he had never felt anger. And Paok Sayadaw, who was a teacher of mine, a Samatha teacher of mine, uh, both in Burma and here, was such a steady being, I never saw a flicker of reactivity cross his face. So settled, so in his body, and so peaceful. So the development of Samatha can go to great depths, it's very beautiful. But we are not primarily focusing on that development here. We are primarily focusing on the development of insight, of vipassana, and samatha will come as a side benefit. So it's a beautiful thing, but we're not primarily practicing just for samatha. In taking the breath as an object to develop vipassana, we want to have an open and natural relationship with it. So we might say that we will uh, develop a slight preference for being with the breath, but it's not an exclusive attached relationship. We can have other partners. So we may like to come back frequently to the breath and aim and rub in that direction, but we're not clinging to it. So when another experience comes, it naturally draws our attention the attention can easily move there. Whether it's sensation in the body, a sound, an emotion, a thought, a sight, if we're walking outside. By staying connected with the breath in Vipassana, you will continue to strengthen the quality of Samatha, but not in an exclusive kind of one-dimensional way. So mindfulness of breathing within a Vipassana context has a kind of nice combination of settledness and calming effect, but also an, an openness to all our experience, very open, wide mind, and an ability to learn through that rubbing from all the different sense experiences that we contact. So trust in this quality of mindfulness in general, in mindfulness of the body, 
in mindfulness of the breath. It will be a consistent place to dwell with wise attention. It will keep you away from all those troublesome avenues of unwise attention. And it's, always, it's also the gateway to insight through the wisdom properties of mindfulness itself. It opens the door to insight. So I just want to close with mentioning a few of the qualities that the Buddha said mindfulness of breathing leads to. I'm going to really condense it. Instead of reading a section from the discourse, I'm just going to hit the highlights. The Buddha said that mindfulness of breathing can be used to develop tranquility, rapture, pleasure, gladness, concentration, and liberation. All of these are in our path as we dwell in mindfulness of breathing. Let's just sit for a minute and let the words settle. Mindfulness of breathing will develop tranquility, rapture, pleasure, gladness, concentration, and liberation. <laughs> 